0: How's everybody doing? Good. It's been a rambunctious weekend. That's, that's nice. I like it. Um, hey, something that, that if you're new to the church or maybe you've been here for a while, I just haven't said it in a while, that we do, uh, that's really interesting and that I really, really enjoy and it's a, it's a thing I have a big heart for, but uh, we support three churches up in New England. My wife is originally from that area. She's from a, her, her mom's family's from an area called Peabody Mass, Massachusetts. A, you never say Massachusetts in Massachusetts. You say Mass. And you don't say Peabody, you say Peabody. So it's like Shelbyville is not Shelbyville, it's, I do don't even know how to say it correctly. You, you… Yeah, there you go. You run it all together. So… Uh, anyways, so that's a very unchurched part of the United States. Uh, we sponsor a church in Burlington, Vermont, which is usually either the number two or, or number one uh, least Christian city in the country, Burlington, Vermont. Uh, we sponsor a church in Manchester, New Hampshire, and we sponsor a church in Salem, Massachusetts. And so every year I take uh, uh, four people, me and three others, we go up there and we help them with administrative stuff or audio video stuff or, or just you know leadership stuff or structure stuff, and we financially support them. Uh, this church financially supports them. And so just to give you a little perspective if you've never heard me talk about these churches, a large church, in fact, uh, the largest church in Burlington, Vermont, which is the one that we support called Church at the Well, Church at the Well is 100 people. That is the biggest church in the city of of Burlington. And Burlington's roughly about the size of Murfreesboro. So it's about a 1% participation in Christianity in Burlington, Vermont. And so we sponsor a church up there. Manchester is a big, big, big church for their area. It's 175, and that's one of the biggest churches in their area. And then Salem is the biggest church in Salem that we uh, sponsor. And Jordan, who is up here playing guitar, did worship for them last summer. And um, it runs about 85 people. And so we sponsor those churches, we help them, and they've seen some good growth and they're seeing a lot of good stuff happen in their city. So I wanted to tell you, when we talk about tithing and giving, this isn't just for our church and for our city. The kingdom is advancing in other parts of the country and um, a lot of good things are happening up there and we really, really thank you guys for supporting that. And you wouldn't, they're blown away by you guys that we would even care uh, that they're up there because they're very alone up there. And I just wanna tell you, thank you. If you've never been here before, we are in the book of Hebrews. We've been working on this for a couple of months now. We finished up chapter seven last week and we're gonna do all of chapter eight. It's a short chapter this week. Now this is in the New Testament if you have a Bible, it's towards the end, it's right before the book of James, right after the book of Philemon. It's also, uh, if you have a smartphone, if you have version, the notes are on there. If you click on the bottom right button, I think it's events, and then click on live event, our church will pop up and you should have got a notes handout when you were in. If you weren't here last week, this is what we talked about. We talked about a lot about the Old Testament, a lot about the law, or the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament. Now, the law, what we talked about, will not create righteousness. Essentially, just knowing the rules does not make us good or bad. Even following all the rules doesn't necessarily make us good or bad. So the law does not create goodness in us. Only the author of the law, God, can create goodness in us. So we talked about the fact that following the rules doesn't cause a relationship with God. A relationship with God makes us want to follow God's commands. What we're gonna talk about this week is this, is that we have the opportunity to change. If you came into this place today and there are things about you, whether it be your past or present struggles or decisions you've made, choices, whatever, insecurities, fears, all these different things, We have an opportunity to change and to be empowered to live differently. But the question is this, are we ready to let the old ways go? Are we ready to be 100% in, okay? So I'm gonna do my best. I'm gonna read chapter eight. I'll break it up in chunks and um, we'll see where the Lord takes us, okay? Just to let you know, we take it for granted down here in the South. We always complain about the heat and humidity so we flew up to, uh, we had all these connecting flights, but the day we drew up to Burlington, Vermont, it snowed two inches. That was last week. I called Elise, and I'm like, how's the weather? And she's like, oh, it's 83. And I'm like, it's two inches of snow in Burlington, and I brought an $8 old Navy fleece. So, uh, you know, everyone's wearing those big thick Columbia jackets, and they're driving their Subarus, and, you know, and there I was. So anyways, all right, chapter eight. Let me pray, and we will jump into this. Lord Jesus God, we love you. Father, I just, I'm so grateful for for where we are right now, God, that I get to be in this room, that I get to teach your word, and that we have the freedom, God, to, to speak openly about what you're doing and to teach your word the way we do. Father, I pray, Lord, that everyone in this room, including myself, that you bless us by hearing your word today, that you teach us truth, that you reveal things in us, God, that you want to deal with and that you want to help. Father, we pray for the three churches we support up in New England. We pray, God, that your kingdom has advanced through them. We pray, God, that you bless every church in Murfreesboro and that your kingdom is advanced through us. Father, Lord, let us see the big picture. Let us understand how much is at stake. Lord God, let us get a hold of the message that you have for us today and let us embrace it. We love you. We thank you, God. Be with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 8, I'm going to read a little bit, and I'm going to do my best to explain it. Here we go. Now, the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary, in the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not by man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary for this priest to also have something to offer. Now, whenever the Bible says the main point is, you should probably take note of that. And so the book of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote this book of the Bible, and we don't even really know who it was written to. But we assume it was written to a group of people who had been taught the faith and maybe some were being diverted, or maybe some had gotten off track. So the author brings it back into focus, and he gives us kind of the thesis of the book of Hebrews, and it's simply this, that Jesus was sent by God to bridge the gap between him and us. And Jesus did this by being the minister or the leader of the true tabernacle, I'll get into that here in a second, and by sitting at the right hand of God. Now, right from the beginning, we see something if we're just casually reading, we can miss over it. When the Levitical priests would work in the temple, they never sat down because their work essentially was never done. They always had to do these things and every single year they had to redo these different different strict kind of precise things to roll back sin and they never sat down. The fact that Jesus came He did his objective, he ascended back into heaven, and sat down is significant because it shows that Jesus accomplished everything he set out to do. I've done my job, I can sit down, and it's a place of authority, and it's a place of excellence. Not only did he sit down, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now this is probably a metaphorical statement, it's probably not a literal statement, like there's a little mini throne next to God the Father, it's probably a metaphorical thing. But what it symbolizes is this, is this is important, is that Jesus, because of the cross, took a position of power, dignity, and excellence because of the sacrifice he offered. What it shows on top of that is it shows the exclusivity of Jesus. What I mean is the Christian faith is a faith of coexistence. What I mean by that, don't get scared, is it means that we live peacefully in a world that doesn't agree with us. Now, Christianity does not fit into a universalist model or a Unitarian model because Jesus made it clear twice in the Gospel of John that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father, the Creator, God, except through Jesus. Jesus is extremely exclusive about Himself. He is the only pathway to salvation. And that's what that is setting up, that He sits at the right hand of God he is the mediator. So the Levitical priests, these guys did a lot of work, right? Killing these animals, pouring the blood over an altar, pouring the blood over the Ark of the Covenant, which we'll get into here in a second. All these different things that they did. All the work that the priests did in the Old Testament was symbolic. All the tasks, all the different, the, the rigorous laws that they had to follow were a picture or a snapshot of the forgiveness of sin that Jesus was going to offer. Now what they did, because they were being obedient to God, is they rolled away sin for a year. This is a bad analogy, but essentially like a spiritual credit card, you would do all these things and it would buy you a year of time, but then you had to do them again, and you had to do that forever until Jesus came. But when he came, he accomplished all that. He paid for the debt and there was no need Jesus to be re-crucified or no need for any more uh, rituals because the debt had been paid. And so the past work of Jesus, what he had done in the past, was the cross. He died, he was buried, he rose again, that's done. All the debt of sin is paid for. Now the present work of Jesus is he just wants to be our mediator and make sure that we get connected to the source that is God. So he paid for all the sin and shame and guilt. Now he just wants to make sure that we accept it and that we receive what he has already purchased. And he does this through the true tabernacle. Now the tabernacle, I'll show you a picture here in a second. The tabernacle was like a mobile sanctuary, a mobile church. And in this mobile church, until they got to the promised land and built the temple, there was a room called the Holy of Holies. Now, in that room was the Ark of the Covenant. If you don't know what that is, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? The Germans have it. That was a bad joke. Anyways, so the, the, that shows the age difference in the room. Like 35 plus are like, ha, 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 and the rest of you are just like, nope. Um, so there was this big gold box called the Ark of the Covenant, and the presence of God hovered on top of this box. Literally, that's where the presence of God was. And only certain people could go into this space and experience the presence of God. Now, what Jesus did through the cross is he tore away that divider. Literally, it says that when he died, the temple veil was ripped in half. Figuratively, it opens up the door that now everyone can experience the presence of God. There's no division between experiencing God and not. So the true tabernacle is no longer a building. The true tabernacle is a spiritual realm. And God is in charge of this spiritual realm. It's not a temporary place. It is is now a permanent residency in heaven. And what has happened is, is now the presence of God no longer resides in a room in a building. It resides in the human heart, that that's where now God lives. And so priests were called to make a sacrifice. That's what they did. Earthly priests presented offerings for human sinfulness, and once a year they did what's called the Day of Atonement. Uh, the Jews call Yom Kippur, which I think is in October, that they do this huge Day of Atonement. It rolls back the sin. They didn't fully understand all that, but they understand that you need to be obedient to God. And what Christ did, though, through the cross, is again, He completely paid for that. He bought all the sins of mankind, all that has taken care of, and there's no need for repetition anymore. He doesn't have to do that year in, year out. He has already paid that debt. And we see a huge contrast between what man can do and what God has done. It says, now, if he were on earth, Jesus, he wouldn't be a priest since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. These priests serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was warned about when he was to complete the tabernacle. For God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry. And to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been legally enacted on better promises. Now, if you haven't been here with us at all through the book of Hebrews, the first, I might get this wrong, the first three chapters are essentially the author saying Jesus is superior to blank. He's superior to angels. He's superior to human leadership. He's superior to, uh, uh, to all religious leaders. He's superior in all ways. Now, Jesus did not come through the proper bloodline when he was born. He didn't come through the proper tribe. He wasn't born into the tribe that were priests. That's not the way he operated. But because of his ability and because of who Jesus is, the Son of God, part of the Holy Trinity that is God, he can not only expose our sin, that's what the priests would do through the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments. They said, here's how you're bad. (laughs) You break these things. Not only could Jesus expose that we're broken, Jesus had the ability to fix us. He had the ability to save us, to restore us, and to equip us to not fall into the same pit holes again. So Jesus found no priestly position while on earth because Jesus didn't fit in on earth. He didn't work like we work. He didn't live how we lived, and He didn't come in the way we wanted Him to come. But He serves as a priest in heaven, and His whole ministry on earth wasn't to do a bunch of rituals. His whole ministry on earth was to sacrifice himself, to give himself and to pay for all of the sins of mankind. That's what he came to do. And to take on such a responsibility, the offering had to be perfect. Think about it. All of the sin, the mistakes, the fear, the shame, the guilt, everything for the thousands of years before Jesus came, And then everything, the thousands and thousands of years since he died for us on the cross, he took all that at one time. Now, such a payment would have to be quite large. And so Jesus came and was the perfect thing and the only thing that could pay off the debt that mankind had accumulated over the centuries and over the millenniums. And so the work of humans, even at our best, even the best spiritual leaders, even the best examples of Christ on earth, we can only be a shadow of what he's done. So the Levitical priests, everything, the high priest, the most spiritual man in the community, even at his best, through all the rituals and the strict instructions for the temple, all they did was foreshadow a reflection of what Jesus was coming to do through the cross. It was only a reflection. And listen, even us nowadays, The best woman you know that is the best example of Christ, the best man you know that is the best example of Christ, even though we reflect what God has done through us, because of our humanity, there's always a distortion. Even the best humans you know have struggled with pride or struggled with envy or struggled with jealousy, so it's not perfection. It may be a reflection of perfection, but it is not perfect. There is always a distortion. And even though we're imperfect though, human leadership was God's design. Even though he knew we were going to mess up, he intended for people to lead. And God had provided them strict instruction on how the Old Testament temple should be organized. Now, if you ever do in the, you know, whenever people really first become a Christian, they're just like, I'm going to read the Bible in a year. And they get to Leviticus and they're like, you know, what did I commit to? And, um, and I don't mean that disrespectfully. One of these days I'm gonna teach the book of Leviticus. It's gonna be an experiment on how to uh, whittle out people in church. And um, here's what's interesting about the book of Leviticus though. When you get into Leviticus, there are rules and laws and strict instruction. I mean, unbelievably stringent instruction from God. Now let me tell you why the book of Leviticus and the book of Chronicles and the book of Numbers and all the genealogies in the Bible, let me tell you why all those things are important. What they do is they show us that God is a God of precision, and that God is a God of order, and the order that he takes for the temple, listen, the order and the diligence he took for the Old Testament temple was a foreshadowing, and it was letting us know that God looks at us much the same way. That every single detail of the temple, God has his hands in those details. Now, we go, we, God does not inhabit a building, we are now the temple. You get where i'm going so every hair on our head is accounted for every thought every action everything we do jesus cares about the details and we see that through his word we see that through the precision that is mentioned in the old testament that is all just pointing to the relationship that christ has with us we also see that if this mobile temple was glorious How glorious do you think our eternal home is going to be? If he cared so much about a mobile sanctuary, what do you think our home for eternity is going to look like? This is an apartment in heaven. No, I'm just joking. No, this is the temple. (laughs) Guys are like, wait a second, do I have to dress like that in heaven too? Um, This is what the tabernacle looked like. Okay, now I'm not going to go into all the precision that is mentioned in this, in this illustration right here, but you can see right here, this, this huge curtain, not the first one, but the second one up here to my left, this is what housed the Ark of the Covenant. Now that's where the Ten Commandments were, it's where Aaron's staff, some manna from heaven, all signs that God had done miraculous things for his people, they were contained in this Ark. Now, it's very, very hard to see because the picture is small. There's two angels on top of that that are pointing their wings towards each other. And that's where they say the Shekinah glory, the glory of God, dwelled right here. No one could touch this ark, and no one could be too close to it. The only one who could enter into the room was the high priest, and he could do it one time a year. And if he had sin in him, he would be struck dead by God. Now, what happened, or, or, or what tends to happen in Christianity as we read about the precision of the temple, we read about how glorious it was and the gold and the linen and all the different colors and the artist work, uh, the, the artistry in it. And it, again, it foreshadows that our heaven that we will live in will be majestic. If God cares so much about this, again, how much more glorious is heaven? But we need to be extremely cautious to make sure that when we pursue heaven, we're pursuing heaven for Christ and not for anything else. What happens is Christianity can become extremely materialistic in our view of faith. We, look, at our, look at our churches now. Look at our temples that we build now. We can become extremely materialistic, and we need to constantly be asking ourselves, is the glory of eternity Jesus? Not the streets of gold, not the 12 foundations of heaven that will be built by precious stones, not the pearly gates, which will be one large pearl, that the gates will continually be open, Revelation says, and we will have freedom to go explore a whole new world. Not, that's not why we aspire to go to heaven. It's not the tree of life. It's not the river that runs through it. It is the light of heaven that we aspire to be around. It is Jesus. That is the true reward of eternity is being with him. Because Jesus came to be the mediator for a better deal, a better agreement. That word covenant, just like a legal, legal uh, uh, agreement, a legal bond, that two people go in and they agree to do these things, and if one breaks their end of it, the whole covenant, the whole promise is off. Jesus came to be the mediator of a better agreement. And the work of Jesus, what he did through the cross, brokered a deal between humanity and God and connected the two, an imperfect people and a perfect God. And if you've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ in your entire life, here's Corey's version of it in a nutshell. Christ rescues people that are dying and have reached a place of desperation. Essentially, Jesus carries out the will of God to pursue those who lost. That is what he has done. Jesus is the mediator between us and God the Father. And he's done that through a new agreement, a new way. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, he says, Look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day that I took them by their hands to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I disregarded them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. But this is the covenant that I will make with them in the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen, and each his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful for their wrongdoing, and I will never again remember their sins. Now, let me break that down a little bit. So the failure of the first agreement, right, because we didn't hold up our end of it. You notice what it says there. God didn't mess up. We did not hold up our end of it. The failure of the first agreement demanded a second agreement. Now, again, the law, the Ten Commandments are not flawed. They're not messed up. It's us that are incapable of following them. So like I said last week, the Ten Commandments, let's just pick on those, not the rest of the 600 laws of the Old Testament, just the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments can only reveal sin, they cannot fix sin. They can only expose the problem, they cannot remove the problem. Since the people could not hold up their end of the bargain, God would now introduce a new promise that would enable them to hold up their end of the bargain, and this was mentioned in Jeremiah 31. That's why if you have a Bible, maybe it's in bold or in quotation marks, the author of Hebrews is quoting something from about 780 years or so in the past. Now the new promise came through the work that Jesus did on the cross. Like I said earlier, the cross created a bridge, not just a bridge, there's no good of of having a bridge unless you walk across it, but it gave us the opportunity to walk across it and have an intimate relationship with God. Not through rigorous laws, but by depending on Jesus to empower us. And if we depend on Jesus to empower us, We have a new moral power inside of us. What that means is this. On our own, we cannot live good lives, righteous lives. We can't do the right thing. But with him, we have the ability to live a good moral life. We have knowledge of God. And when we make mistakes, we have forgiveness from God. This is what Jesus offers us. And so at the time that Jeremiah wrote this, roughly 780 years before the author of Hebrews rewrote it, Jeremiah 31 was written after the Jews had been had been liberated from Egypt, so they were free. And in Jeremiah's time, God was trying to build up his relationship with his people. But many of them had turned around and they had, had turned their back on Jesus or on God. Sorry, Jesus hadn't come yet. But what God was telling Jeremiah to tell his people was: I'm gonna bring you close and it's gonna crescendo, it's gonna come to a pinnacle in the fact that I'm gonna make you a new covenant. You have this old promise, I'm going to make you a new promise. There was also a civil war going on at this time. The north and the south, Israel and Judah were fighting, and so God's people weren't even getting along with each other, imagine that, right? They weren't even getting along with each other. And so what we see is this, in Jeremiah 31, Jesus' whole uh, objective was reconciliation. The name of the game for Jesus was reconciling first our relationship with our heavenly father he wants to reconcile that first above all things it says this in the gospel or it says it in the new testament that jesus came to save sinners first and foremost he wants to reconcile our relationship with him but once our relationship with god has been reconciled we are called to be conduits and we are called to be advocators for peace and reconciliation with each other That means churches should be able to get along. That means brothers and sisters in Christ should be able to get past their disagreements and talk things out and be gracious. doesn't mean you have to go to Starbucks with them every day, but we should be able to live peacefully with each other. Above all things, God has called us to be reconcilers with each other. So we also see in verse 9, the grace of God. The first covenant was to lead his people out of captivity. It was to free them. But after that, they did not hold up their end of the bargain. And so instead of God leaving his people, listen to this. Look look at this grace. Instead of him saying, well, to hell with them, right? They haven't kept up their end of it. I'm going to push away from the table. God takes it up a notch and inserts himself into humanity. So now God just wasn't leading from a distance. He came and looked people in the eyes. I think it was Thomas that came up to to Jesus and said, show us the Father. And Jesus said, you're looking at him. I and the Father are one. I came down and God looked at humanity to personally lead us. So no longer is there a question of what would God do in my shoes. We see it through Jesus, through the gospel. He has come to do those things and you see the grace of God. What's interesting though, the other side of that, is there was a lot of people that didn't want the grace of God. And to that, God said through Jeremiah, I disregarded those people. That doesn't mean that if we make one mistake, God turns his back on us. These are people who were given over to what Romans 1.28 says is a worthless mindset. You guys have probably met people like this. What they want more than anything is they want distance from God. They want God to leave them alone. And over time, God eventually says, okay, The other thing that this disregard could be referring to, this is going to make some of you unhappy, and I'm sorry, but it was referring to a blanket judgment over a whole entire nation for their rebellion. Do you want to, here's what's going to make you mad. Do you want to know why we have such poor choices for leadership in this nation? Because the more and more we push God out of the equation, the more and more chaos we're going to inherit. Now, look, I I didn't expect applause for it. Because people don't like it. Because we want to look to a man or woman to lead us when God's up there saying, I can lead you and I can lead you effectively. We've done it all throughout human history. The reason why we have kings in the first place is God's like, I'm your king. And they're like, no, we want a king like on earth. And he's like, here's Saul. Do you guys know how that worked out? It's been working out like that ever since. The more we push God out of the equation, we cannot be shocked at what we have to choose from right now. It didn't go over well at any of the services. So though we failed, though we failed, there is hope. It says that this new promise is for the house of Israel. Now at first you're like, oh my gosh, I'm not a Jew. No, you don't have to be a Jew. We've been grafted into the trunk that is the Jewish people. They were the first true followers of God and we've been grafted into that tree. Now anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, is, is offered this salvation. We are offered this new promise. We're all a part of that. And what Jesus said or what God said through Jeremiah about Jesus is that Jesus was going to come. Listen, I love this. And he was going to write his laws on their minds and on their hearts. And what that means is God will give us the mentality. He will give us the spiritual capacity to walk righteously if we will just let him in. If we'll be filled with his spirit, if we will rely on God, every single corner of the believer's life will be positively affected by Jesus. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, or if you're new to this, I just, I just want to warn you, when you become a Christian, God gets all up in your business. He gets in your finances. He gets in your marriage. He gets in your relationship with your kids. He gets into your workplace. There's no compartmentalizing with Jesus. Well, I'll work like this, and then I'll act differently here. It's not the way Jesus operates. You're all in, or it's nothing. And again, the old ways only exposed a problem, But the new way gives us the ability to be what we need to be at work and with our family and with our spouse or whatever arena of life you're dealing with. But every single corner of us now experiences our relationship with Jesus. And it's no longer a ritual. Guys, quite frankly, I I don't like calling Christianity a religion. It is a relationship. And the new covenant, the new promise we have with Jesus, produces an intimate relationship with God. Jesus guards us, he gives us grace, he listens to us us and works on our behalf. And now you don't have to go through a priest, you don't have to go through a pastor, you don't have to go through anyone. You can have direct access to God and your stature and your prominence have nothing to do with it. They're not factors in this. The knowledge of God and the intimacy with God, it says, is from the very least all the way up to the very greatest and everything in between. Now, here's probably the coolest part for all of you who've lived colorful lives in here like I have. Through the cross and through this new promise with God through Jesus Christ, this new covenant, not only does Jesus show us mercy by forgiving us, Jesus shows us mercy by choosing to forget what we've done. Let this soak in. When I get to, to the judgment seat and Jesus is in front of me and I'm being judged for what I've done by the time I've been given here, I hopefully hopefully he's going to say, come in, you've done a good job, Corey, come in. And I'm going to say, well, Jesus, what about this? I did this. I was rebellious here. I was lustful here. I was all these different things. And he's going to look down and say, I don't see any of that. My blood washed all that away. Not only does he forgive me, are you guys awake out there? Okay. Not only does he forgive us, but his blood blots those things out, washes those things out. Now listen, God has always been merciful. When you read your Bible, even when he was blowing up cities, God was merciful. He had to be pushed to quite an extent before he took those actions. Now, if it was up to us, I would have already obliterated mankind a long time ago, right? Amen. Right? No. Okay. Sorry. It's just Corey. Good thing Corey's not God. Anyways. God has always been extremely merciful, but through the cross, it expressed this depth of God's mercy that we had never seen before. He gave His only Son. This kind of grace takes a large buy-in. I'm not trying to get all weird on you. God believes in us so much that He gave His only Son. I believe that humanity is worth it so much that I will give everything I have. Everything I have. And through God giving His Son we can find redemption and we can be saved one verse now i love this verse by se- listen listen carefully to this by saying a new covenant god has declared that the first is old and what is old and aging is about to disappear so when you're born you age you grow up and you eventually die The law is much the same way. Our life is transient, which means we're only here for a certain amount of time, and then we go on to something greater, our eternity. The law is very much the same way. Jeremiah predicted that the law was going to die. 700 years before Jesus was born, Jeremiah said, hey, the way we're doing it now, it's not going to be done like this forever. It's going to come to an end. But it took 700 years for those rituals to die off. Actually, 733 years for those rituals to die off. Now, here's the thing about us me included. We love rules because rules are easy. We love rules. Hey baby, can you just give me a list of rules of things I do and do not do in our marriage and we'll be okay? That's why denominations are still big and I'm not trying to be a jerk because we just want someone give me the rules. Give me the list. I'll follow the list. But here's the thing about rules. Rules do not create healthy relationships. Any of you who have healthy marriages, it's not because you have a list on the fridge. That does not create a healthy relationship. And mandates do not create intimacy. One time, a young lady, and she was a smart young lady, but she said, Isn't it cool that Jesus was a socialist? And I said, Hold on a second. Socialism mandates that you are benevolent. Jesus says, From the love of your heart, you should be benevolent. There's a strong difference. Mandates make us be ambivalent and resentful resentful towards the process. But if we love people, it is a joy to give. Do you guys see what I'm saying? Mandates don't make people intimate and loving. Only God does that. Only God does that. And through the love in our heart, we should want to give. If I see that someone doesn't have anything and I have more than enough. So the old covenant, the old way, was good for a time in a place. The Old Testament law was essential for defining sin and showing us that we are dependent on God more than we realize. The more you read the Old Testament and all the laws and all the rules, and all this, the more you're like, without God, there's no way. But it has become obsolete in its ability to lead us. That doesn't mean that we don't study the Old Testament. That doesn't mean that we don't honor the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that we don't love researching it. What the Old Testament essentially is, guys, if you're reading the Bible for the first time, the entire Old Testament is a big arrow that points to Jesus. It's a big direction, it's blinking and it's lighting up and it's saying, you need Jesus, and so God sent Jesus. That's essentially what it is. And listen, Jesus takes the pressure off us to be perfect because he promises that we can be saved because he was perfect. So when I let Jesus into my heart, when I let Jesus take over, when I am completely in, God looks at me and he doesn't see imperfect Corey, he sees perfect Jesus. Perfect Jesus. That's why we are called Christians. That's why we are called followers of Jesus. He goes first, so when you look at us, you only see him. You only see him. So what is old and aging disappears. Now, this is a statement. And if you've never heard this, and if it's your first time, or you're on the fence about the whole thing, let me tell you what Jesus offers. Through Jesus, we are promised inward power, to master our temptations and fears. It means the struggles you have, the depression that riddles you, the anxiety that keeps you up at night, the fear that keeps you paralyzed. Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, because we're to be anxious for nothing and fear is not a spirit given to us by God, that through the power of the Holy Spirit we can master those things. I hope that speaks to someone in this room. Let me tell you a story real quick. Can I tell you a story? It's the 11 o'clock, so there's no more people coming into the parking lot. It's just you. (laughs) So we're sitting in Concord, New Hampshire. That's where we stayed. It's real close to Manchester, right? And we're eating at this really cool place. Uh, uh, It's like a Tex-Mex place. I think it's uh, Margaritaville or something. I don't know if Jimmy Buffett owns that, but anyways. It's in an old jail. So you sit in these jails. It's a really neat place. And every time I go to Concord, I just like to eat there because it's neat. And so we're sitting there. Keep in mind no one in this area is Christian. And so we're sitting in this, in this area and our waitress comes up and people always ask, you know, where are you from? What are you doing? You know, what what brought you to Concord and all this stuff. And, uh, we just, uh, you know, we tell her. And so, uh, she's kind of blown away with this and she's like, I've been feeling so long. I just need to go to church. I need a relationship with Jesus. And she comes back later and she starts asking me all these theological questions, right? (laughs) And and they're always like the, the doozies. And, um, but one of the ones she asks is she comes in and she just, she folds her hands. she goes, so tell me what you think about smoking, smoking weed. I was like, because it's legal up there. You can, there's a skate shop in Burlington, Vermont called Riding High. Listen, this is ingenious. You can buy a skateboard and weed at the same place. An insurance company should put themselves right next to that. Anyways, so... Uh, so this waitress says, you know, what do you think about smoking weed? And, and my answer was, why do you smoke it? What do you find, what benefits you from smoking marijuana? What, what, what does it do? I'm speaking to someone in this room right now. She said, well, I get super stressed, and I get super anxious, and it calms me down. And I said, well, let me go back to your first statement. Don't you think the Lord is trying to draw you in because He should de-stress you and calm you down? She's kind of sat there for a second. She goes, I never thought of it that way. And I said, here's the thing with intoxication. It's not that the smoke going into your lungs is a sin. It's that we make something that we depend on more than God in our lives. So whenever the world tells me we need this because it's going to help us live better, you need Jesus. You need Christ. You don't need to get drunk. You don't need to get high. We can master our temptations, we can master our fears, we can master our stress, we can master the pitfalls of life if we just have the Holy Spirit in us. We can also have intimate knowledge of God and the comfort of His presence. Do you know what God's Spirit is called? The Comforter and the Counselor. It gives us direction and it gives us a peace that passes all understanding. And from a guy who is addicted to multiple drugs, I can sleep better at night than I ever have in the past and not because of any kind of intoxicant, because the comforter lives right here. We also have forgiveness of sins with the assurance that everything we did in the past will not be held against us. If you're a non-believer in here, this is attractive. This is worth looking into. This is worth exploring. But let me ask you, now here comes the curveball. For all of you in this room, All of those things that I just showed you are offered to us through Jesus. Offered to us. They're already bought and paid for. You just got to come pick them up. They're offered for us. But are we ready to let the old rituals die? That's the question. I don't want to ruin it for any of you, and I don't want to scare you off. By the way, we prayed for that girl in the middle of the restaurant. Killer. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Being a Christian takes a lot of effort. And let me, I don't mean to ruin it even further, guys. It's going to take more effort in the future. It's not going to be easier to be a Christian as time goes on. It's going to become much and much uh, more work for us as the world gets nuttier and nuttier. A life with Christ is not always easy, but we are offered not only a fresh start, If you're in here and the old ways are not working, you're not only offered a fresh start, you're offered the means to live at a higher standard with much, much greater rewards. I'm not even talking about heaven. I'm not talking about the streets of gold and pearly gates. That's not what I'm talking about. You can live a better life now, right now, right here. If we look at the chaos of the world and what they've done, has the ways of the world produced in us a content, happy people? Has it? I love when everyone's like, man, we need to change all of our rules to be like Denmark because Denmark's awesome. Universal this and universal that. You know the highest suicide rate in the world? Denmark. Because without God, there's always a deficiency. Without God, there's always a hole. Without God, there's never rest. And some of you need to access like, really, really look at your life and step back And assess it and say, has my way brought me comfort? Has it brought me peace? Has it brought me eternal, internal joy? Has it done these things? Have I lived at my fullest capacity? Listen, there are some Christians in this room. There's something you guys got to give up. You may have given 90% to the Lord, but he's not content with that. Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says, I would either have you cold or hot because if you're in the middle, lukewarm, Jesus' words, not mine, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. So when you go to New England, they may only have 100 people in their church in Salem, Massachusetts. I asked Guy, he's the pastor, I said, hey, what percentage of people serve? Oh, 85%. How many are in small groups? 85, 90%. We're, we're in. They're all in. Here, we might have a quarter, and we're doing better than most in the South. The difference is this. In the South, we can kind of get away with being half in. We can kind of get away. If I make you mad, just go to New Vision or go to World Outreach, right? Or if they make you mad, come here. We don't have to reconcile with our pastor. We just jump to another church. You know, up there, they don't have that luxury. They have to reconcile. They have to talk. And the reason why they have such a high percentage of, the, uh, of participation up there, you want to know why? Because when you become a Christian in Salem, Massachusetts, you have to give up everything. Their number one driver of income in that town, you guessed it, is, is like stores that sell uh, spells, literally. They have witchcraft stores like every other, every other store. It's a witchcraft store. Some of them are campy, but some of them are the, they're the real deal, the real deal. And most of their income is derived from that. The largest LGBT community in the Northeast is in Salem. The mayor is a, a lesbian woman. She's the one that raged against Hobby Lobby and led that whole fight. They just passed a law the day we were leaving that now it's mandatory by law that every single bathroom in, uh, uh, in Salem is, is gender neutral. And so when you give up and become a Christian up there, you might be giving up your job, your relationship, your friend base, everything. So when you're in, you're in. You're in because it costs a lot. And I fear down here that our hugest problem, our biggest problem, is not that we can't fill churches. We can do that. Man, we've done that. 2,500, 3,000 people here this weekend. We've done that. My problem is that we may have bought into a lie that we think, pardon me, that we can half-ass this whole thing. And a lot of us are going to stand before the Lord. My God, I'm not trying to be condemning today. A lot of us are going to stand before the Lord and He's like, I don't know you. I don't know you, but Lord, I came to church. You followed rules. I don't know who you are. Some of you guys need to let some stuff go. And some of you guys need to step back and say, am I really in this 100%? Forgive me if I have become a pastor that has let this become a social club and I have not pushed you to the extent to where you're confident in your faith and you've given it all. If I ever become that, I need to step down. Would you bow your heads with me? As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I love you. But when we sing amazing grace, get over yourself and worship. If you've experienced the grace of God, and freaking lift your hands he died for you on the cross (sighs) I love you so much if I have to be a jerk to spark you into getting a relationship with God and making it genuine and authentic I'll be a jerk Father, for everyone in this room who's not a believer, Lord, touch their heart right now, God, and Lord, let them be courageous enough to ask the question, are my ways working? And if they're not working, Lord, touch their heart and soften it. Father, right now in my heart, God, I feel very strongly. For everyone in this room, Lord, they know you're there. They know the truth, they've heard the gospel, They even say that they've given their life to you. But Lord, there are so many people in this room right now, and I'm not trying to be judgmental. There are so many people in this room right now, Lord, that there is a corner of their heart. It may only be 5% or 3% or 1%, but there is a corner, God, that they will not let your light shine on. My prayer right now, Father, is that you shine a light on that corner and you expose to them what that is, and so they can give that over to you. Father and Lord, I know that if they will do that, you will bless them. You will honor that, God. You will give them the contentment that they think is elusive. You will give them sleep and rest at night. You will answer their prayers, and you will honor their work. But God, we've got to be courageous enough to let you expose those parts of us. God, we love you. We thank you, Jesus. Please, God. There are people in this room who their hearts are... Just, just wrap your hand around them, God. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, there's communion on the right and left. Everyone is welcome to take that. All that is is a simple reminder that Jesus has given everything for us. And he has poured out his spirit on us if we accept it. Everyone is welcome to take that as long as you ask God to forgive you. Listen, as your heads are bound, your eyes are closed, there's also people on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything, anything, if you have questions about Christianity, Josh is to my right, your left. Ask them. Talk to these people. Let them pray for you. Get your communion and don't just, please, just don't walk out and squander this moment. Pray. Get down on your knees. Talk to the Lord. Ask him to expose whatever has not been relented in your life so you can give it up. Lord Jesus, we love you, God. Be with my brothers and sisters. Forgive me, God, if I've been uh, impatient or if I've been crass today, Lord. I love you and I lift you up in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys so much.